multidimensional practice. And the talk really comes out of my own journey, my own experience, um, not necessarily drawn from the texts or um, other places I could be drawing from. Uh, Some will be referring to the tradition, but more from just what I've gleaned along the way. So, having walked this path now for some 30 years, um, and having some sense of the span of practice and just the, the rhythms and the ebbs and flows of our lives and the way they meander and uh, where we get drawn into things. We have phases, whether it's study or career or particular passions. Um, what I've come to see is that, that a mature spirituality uh, requires that we uh, learn how to include all dimensions of our experience, not just those sitting on the meditation cushion or in the delicious silence of a meditation retreat. But to, you know, the way I understand um, my own practice and this tradition is we have both the place for the silent, inner, contemplative, still... uh, practice of meditation, whatever the many forms that can be. And then the, the place for how to include the other dimensions of our life that are not so quiet, <laughs> not so still, that are busy, that are engaged, that are connecting, that are relational, that um, may involve uh, passion, play, sensuality, um, and whatever else that's calling us in our lives. So I like to read this poem a lot by Hafez, and it speaks to partly what I'm pointing to in this talk, which is honoring these different parts of ourselves. He says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. But you have all the genius to build a swing in the backyard for God. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to me. Let's start gathering our talented friends and start drawing up blueprints. You have all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. So, you know, I think that's really a good instruction for practice to know what ingredients uh, help us wake up, help us get clear, help us develop wisdom and kindness and Equanimity. This is from the dancer, choreographer Martha Graham. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you, in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist again through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not, your business to t- de- it is not your business to determine how good it is and how it compares with other expressions. 
It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly and to keep the channel open. And there's a great teaching, if ever I heard one. It is not your business to determine how good it is, <laughs> how big it is, how shiny it is, how whatever we think it should be, how wide, how spiritual, or how it compares to the other expressions, which of course are also their own unique manifestation. But to keep that channel open so we can flower, so we can manifest that which was within us. Because if we don't, then we stifle our own life force, our own creativity, our own potential, and that sows the seeds of suffering, which is really what this practice is about, to see how we interrupt natural cycles that we're out of alignment with, whether it's our body, our mind, our heart, our purpose, our work in the world, our relationships. So, as this practice takes root in the West, the roots of the practice come from Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, where this Theravadan insight meditation practice is derived from. And for the last 2,500 years, the, the, the lineage has been preserved in the monastic tradition. Monks and nuns who've renounced worldly pleasures and devote themselves to practice and study and meditation and live a life that's quite different than how we're living. I don't see too many renunciates in here. I don't find too many renunciates in the Bay Area. <laughs> There's too many goodies going on. You know, it's just too much fun. It's like Candyland, you know, sense pleasure. So, um, so we're not living for the most part. Some of you might be, but I mean, you may be internally rena- renouncing things, but we're not living an outwardly renunciate life. We're not retreating from the world. We're not retreating from sensual pleasures. Um, and so it's important to understand, uh, and it's been important to understand for me, um, the, the archetype that the lineage holds, this monastic archetype, um, with its, uh, and, and our associations and ideas about what it means to be uh, a Buddhist, or what it means to be mindful, what it means to be uh, spiritual. And to just to notice what your conscious and unconscious assumptions are, because we all hold them, of what it means to be living uh, this spiritual life. So for me, um, my, and I'll talk about this in a, a more in depth in a minute, um, to see how we, we overlay our, our own religious conditioning onto this practice whether it's Christian or Judaic or whatever else your practice was, New Age. <laughs> uh, this is old age practice. <laughs> I mean, not old age. <laughs> well, it's both, actually. Why not? We're going to get old, so we better start now. And <laughs> so, but to know, so, so for me, the, some of the messages I, I picked up that weren't necessarily 
what the tradition was teaching was um, that you know to, to to not indulge sense pleasures, to withdraw from um, desire. Um, that having fun was kind of a waste of time, not really the real work. Um, and to be sort of quiet and slow and meek and humble and calm and poised as you move through this crazy, messy world. Is that any, any people have any of those kind of associations with this practice? You know, that how it looks a certain way and how we try and imitate that in a certain way? So one of my understandings of the awakening process is it's about coming to, it's coming home and it's coming to into integrity with ourselves and living in alignment with who we are in our nature. And when we step out of that integrity and congruency and alignment, we don't do so well. Again, this is from Martha Graham. She says, we rarely hear the inward music, but we're all dancing to it nevertheless. We rarely hear the inward music. Whatever your inward music is, we might hear the tune or we don't, but we dance to its rhythm. So um, I'm going to share a little about my journey in because it, it's a way of me talking about this theme. And I, stu- I was raised Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic in England, and I uh, was very touched by that tradition in many ways, the mystical ritual um, and the chanting and the, the choir and um, some of the iconography. Um, and then uh, at some point in my adolescence left the church for various reasons, as many people do, and then um, came into contact with Buddhism quite young. I was um, uh, 19, and I, some of you know some of this story. I was a punk rocker. Uh, I was an anarchist, and... Uh, was squatting, so I was living in abandoned public housing and pretty radical. Um, sort of, it was the I was involved in a movement that was similar to the Occupy movement now, but it was back then. It's called Stop the City, um, and pretty angry and wild. And I, I was I loved the punk scene. I made my own clothes, and I had white mohawk and earrings, and just very really fun, super creative, silly, and. Um, this was like Burning Man every day on the streets. You know. <laughs> and and then I, I encountered Buddhist practice, and I had a lot of ideas about what it, what, Buddha, what being a Buddhist was, and they were most mostly Catholic Buddhist ideas. So I became I became what I thought was a really good Catholic Buddhist, just pious. And again, this is my own misconceptions of what either of those traditions mean. I was pious. I became good and quiet and. And all that wild creativity that I was in with this political activism, anarchy, and punk, and design, and I, I thought, that's not, that's got nothing to do with the spiritual life. And I just completely sat on it. I, I gave all my clothes away, shaved my mohawk off, moved into a retreat center, much to the horror of my family and friends, because my, my family had a much harder time me being a Buddhist and a punk rocker. Because... <laughs> Buddhism in the 80s was really weird and obscure. It was really obscure. And punk rock was like, you know, that's what they, you know, teenagers do and they grow out of it. And But Buddhism, it's culty. So, um, so, I, so I sat down this whole life force for a long, long time. 
And of course, got really unwell and, and healthy and, and, and happy, and as you do when you shut down your natural zeal and passion. Um, um, but nonetheless, I, I practiced very seriously. I went to Asia, studied with many teachers, spent a long, many, many years on retreats, long silent retreats, which were wonderful and deep and illuminating and um, uh, gratifying. Um, but there was still a big part of me that was split off. And uh, we can only split off for so long. Have you tried it? Tried splitting off certain things you deny in yourself? At some point, they will come back to be claimed. As uh, one teacher said, the, the divine is very selfish. It wants all of you. The sacred wants all of you. Not just the nice goody-two-shoes part of you that you think is your idea of what spiritual is. But it wants all of you. It wants the fullness of our humanness. Why wouldn't it? It's, here it is. Whatever that looks like. So, um, you know, and, um, we all come to integration over time in different ways. For me, it was, um, I sort of pushed this, this part of myself that wanted to wake up and get free of this suffering, messy world. And I wanted to sort of live in this ethereal, uh, empty, meditative realm. Uh, I was on my way to become a monk in Burma. Um, and uh, thought that was that was the solution, which it is for for many. It's a beautiful path, uh, but it just wasn't my path. Uh, the punk rocker in me, was, or something in me, rebelled. Uh, I was on a long three month silent retreat, and I ended up having somewhat of a um, spiritual emergency, you could say. It's a polite way of saying a meltdown. Um, and uh, discovered a lot of trauma that I hadn't felt before and, and they didn't, didn't even know about uh, came up early trauma pre-verbal trauma I completely shattered my spiritual ego which by that time was very large and very refined <laughs> and thought I had it all together <laughs> as you do until life just gives you a little slap pulls the rug out and and, and it didn't and the rug was really pulled out I didn't go to Burma I couldn't meditate for quite a long period, and uh, my whole life was sort of shattered and didn't know what to do. And it was a long, dark night of a long, dark year or two of the soul. Um, and one which I don't, it was incredibly painful, but one which I have no regrets for because it, it was what forced me back to myself. Um, and I asked my teacher at the time, I said, how come it's how come it has to be so painful <laughs> to come home? Like, is it, is there must be an easier way. And he said, well, some people just have such strong walls, defenses around them, that it just it needs a volcano to kind of blow through. I said, thanks, that's really great. <laughs> appreciate that. So, um, so part of, so I think as I look back, you know, I mean, of course we're always reframing our experience as, as time goes by and as, as we look back. And one of the ways I understand that is it was I, I had to reclaim myself, or life had to reclaim me, reclaim the parts of me that were disowned, that were um, unacknowledged or un, unexpressed or unfelt. <clears throat> so... Um, one of the things I did on that retreat, because I couldn't meditate, I was dealing with a lot of internal turmoil and trauma, um, and I didn't. I was homeless at the time, so I didn't have anywhere. I, they couldn't kick me out and send me home because I didn't have any, any home. So, so I had to stay, which was quite excruciating because I didn't really want to be there. Um, 
And what, and my teacher at the time gave me uh, his Sony Walkman, which you can see how dated this story is. Um, this cassette player with his cassette tapes. Actually, maybe CDs. You know. um, and I would listen to classical music and any kind of music I can get my hands on and walk in the woods, in the snow. Um, and that was my way of grounding what was happening in me and staying present with, with, with it. Having enough, big enough, big enough space to hold my inner turmoil, and um, and I once said to him, I said, you know, all these people on retreat, they're meditating, they're, they're sitting, and they're walking, and they're being very diligent, and I'm out in the woods listening to Mozart, running around the snow, and you know, talking to trees, and I said, that's I'm not practicing, and my practice is terrible. Like I, I, such, I had such a you know, strong idea of, or clear idea of what I thought practice was. And he said, practice is whatever helps you come to balance. And for you, what you need to get balanced is a lot of space, a lot of movement, music, reading, conversation, connection. That was what was integrating in the moment. And so since then, it, I've, I've had a much broader view of what practice is. You know, we have we can have such a narrow idea of well, my medita- my practice is how mindful I am, or how my how my meditation is in the morning, and then we sort of forget about the other sixteen hours of the day. So, um, partly what the way I understand this perspective, it's really more of a tantric perspective, and tantra was a school of um, both Buddhist and Hindu uh, thought that developed. Probably in the, I don't know exactly when, 5th, 6th century, um, as, a, as a response to the renunciate traditions that were rejecting the body and sensuality and sexuality. Um, and their philosophical point of view was if everything uh, has Buddha nature, then the body has Buddha nature, and sensuality and sexuality has Buddha nature, and nature has Buddha nature, and everything has Buddha nature, including your dog. So, um, in answer to that koan, does your dog have Buddha nature? Yes, of course, everything has Buddha nature. Everything has the capacity to awaken and to awaken us. So, this is um, uh, from the Vimalakirti Sutta, which is um, uh, it's a pre tantric text, but it, it, it points to this view, this view of, see, of seeing how to bring a practice to everything. Mm. You must manifest ordinary behavior in nirvana, which is awakened state, where you act like a normal person without losing your spiritual nature, and where nothing troubles you at any stage of practice. In short, you must attain liberation without avoiding the passions that rule the world. So we can avoid and renounce the passions, or we can include them as just another thing to integrate and to have wisdom and compassion with and also to learn how to express them in our lives. So this journey, this this process that kind of took me sideways, um, uh, I had a lot of questions about what it meant to be on this path, and I had a lot of questions for myself about what I'd left out. Where had that part of me that was very expressive and creative and artistic and wild and playful? Uh, and fun-loving, where had that gone, you know, in my journey uh, that I that I left behind at 19? And where is the place for, for passion and play 
in this life. This is from Rumi. He says, I was sleeping, being comforted by a cool breeze, when suddenly a gray dove from a thicket sung and sobbed with longing and reminded me of my own passion. I had been away from my own soul so long, so late sleeping, but that dove's crying woke me and made me cry. Praise to the all, praise to all the w- early waking grievers. So the gray dove sang and sobbed with longing and reminded him of his own passion he had been away from, from his soul for so long. This is another Rumi poem who, um, as you know, speaks so beautifully to this part of our nature. There is some kiss we want with our whole lives, the touch of spirit on the body. Seawater begs the pearl to break its shell, and the lily how passionately it needs some wild darling. At night I open the window and ask the moon to come and press its face against mine. Breathe into me, close the language door and open the love window. The moon won't use the door, only the window. So um, so I began to play a little with what it meant to be mindful and awake in, in life. And the, the first thing that I was drawn to after having been sitting, doing sitting meditation for very intensively for <coughs> 15 or more years <coughs> was to f- rediscover my body and to move and to dance and to um, uh, use the, mo- the, the form of movement and, and, and mindful movement and, and dance as a way of um, bringing presence to that part of us that, that, that needs to move, that needs to um, play and dance. <laughs> as we've been doing for you know probably you know, millennia and millennia from the most primal forms of spiritual practice so the particular vehicle I used was the five rhythms the Gabby Roth's um, five rhythms which is a beautiful dance form which I've taught some here uh, daylongs um, and it was a wonderful way to it was a safe way to um, to connect with um, with play with expression with wildness, with sensuality, with sexuality, in a very um, uh, aware-filled container. Um, and I, I did that practice for about 10, 12 years. Um, and just, and it's, it was a, it's just another different dimension to practice. So as I'm talking, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you're reflecting on well, w- w- what are my practices? Wh- wh- what, do I, what vehicles do I use to inform me to bring awareness to myself and to life and to, and to, to cultivate insight or expression or love or connection or freedom. So I found a lot of freedom in, you know, I was from England, so, you know, and kind of stiff and reserved and, you know, and, and dance was the perfect medicine to kind of, to, you know, break open the shell, you could say. So there's a story um, from the Christian tradition about uh, a young novice goes joins a monastery, and this monastery is known for its um, transcribing of uh, texts, which medieval Christian monasteries did a lot of. 
And so one day the novice is uh, copying the texts and he realizes that he's just copying other copies. He's not actually copying from the original. And so he goes to the, the abbot and says, you know, abbot, I'm, I'm worried that you know, we're copying from copies, and, but if the copy is incorrect, then we're just copying mistakes. So wh- why don't we copy from the original? Then we would be sure not to make mistakes. And the abbot says, mm, that's a good point. I'll go look at the originals and, s- and see. So the abbot goes down to the vaults in the monastery and um, he's gone for a long time and the, the young novice gets worried. So he goes down and he, and he sees the abbot bang his head against the wall like, no, no, no. And the young novice says, what's wrong? What's wrong, father? What's wrong? And the, the abbot says, it says celebrate. Celebrate. <laughs> not celibate. <laughs> so, <laughs> what if that was a mistake? <laughs> It'd be a different world. It'd be a different clergy. So, you know, different traditions bring that out more than others. Um, But for me, that's a really important part of being human, to celebrate, to celebrate this life, to celebrate this body, to celebrate each other, to celebrate nature, to celebrate children, to celebrate love and beauty and and creativity. I mean, it's it's, it's a... an amazing world, an amazing body that we're in that, that deserves awe and wonder and celebration and reverence. And so where is that in our lives? Where, where is space for that? What touches us in, in that? You know? I'd love to go see you know, the ballet, SF Ballet, just to see the, the, the range and the potential of the human body. It's beautiful. Music or whatever it is that, that brings that touches that, I think it's really important. And then, so that that was one of the first ways I began to play. The second um, place that really became alive for me, and I really owned it as my practice, was being out in the wild. It's one of the things I loved about coming to the states when I came in the early '90s was the wilderness and how vast and accessible and uh, wild and untamed, um, beautiful. And so I spent a lot of time outside and, be- and eventually did most of my practice outside and then did my own retreats outside and then started leading retreats outside because it just it was, became so... Um, it's like a temple. I mean, nature's a temple for me. And the, the teachings of wisdom, of connection, of non-separation, of love, of not-self, of impermanence, of transiency, all the things that we teach here a lot, they just... There, you step out the door and they're right there. You know, connection, impermanence, death, life and death, beauty, fragility, vulnerability, presence. And is there anybody here who goes out into nature and doesn't feel more enlivened or more awake or more present and more connected? I mean, do we feel more connected in our cars or when we're out in the forest? You know, in our houses or when we're at the ocean? There's something that comes alive in us, and so for me, it was really—it's been really important to feel that inner wild, both the inner wildness and the inner wilderness. And when I when I use the word passion and wildness and creativity, um, 
an expression. Of course, it's always in the context of um, the the, fu- the foundational precept in these teachings, which is the the, the precept of non-harming, that that we're not being wild and then hurting other people or exploiting other people. There's, it's all, it's always within the context of, of course, we understand that we're connected and that expression, that wildness, that freedom has to be expressed in a way that's not harming to ourselves or to others. So I just want to put that out as the as a caveat to what I'm saying or as a, as a uh, frame. This is from the poet Ikkyu who was a, once a, a great abbot in a Zen monastery in Kyoto and then got fed up with the the, um, the bureaucracy and the double standards in that in the religious institution and became a poet and um, a wild man. Every day priests minutely examine the law and endlessly chant complicated sutras. Before doing that, though, they should learn how to read the love letters sent by the wind and the rain and the snow and the moon. So another dimension in my practice that really shifted as I went through this dark night um, was, was my, my, the, the beauty of the pain is it blows the heart open if we, if we let it. And as our heart opens, we feel more compassion, we feel more empathy, we feel more love, and that certainly was true for me, and, I, and that's why I don't have any regrets about that really difficult period, because it, it did crack my heart open, and um, apparently it was necessary. <laughs> and so that, that's been a very strong feature of, of, my, of uh, these last 15 years since then, is the exploration of love, exploration of the heart. My, my earlier practice, I really wanted just to be free, which, merely, which really meant for me escaping the world and getting away from the mess. And of course, it's impossible. I mean, you can sort of go to a cave, but you're still in the world and you still have a body and you still have to deal with your neighbors and you, st- you know, on it goes. So, um, and so just as Jack talks about coming out of the monastery and feeling like you had to come through down the chakras rather than up the chakras, uh, I felt similar to that way. And um, not just down the chakras, but also... It, the metaphor I use more is more coming home to myself, from transcending, and then coming home to body, to here, to um, and to the heart, to my heart, and to love. To and and for me that expression, and especially in the last maybe five years or so, has been it's been what I call the path of vulnerability, the path of what, when we really stand in our humanness, and um, uh, in our heart. It's inevitable that we feel the fragility and the vulnerability of being human. As we get old, as we get sick, as we lose people who are dear to us, there's a certain vulnerability that comes. Or or we we harden. That's always a choice. We harden, we close down, we get bitter, we get resentful, we get hurt, and we close. But that's really suffering to close like that. And so, you know, so for me, the journey is, how do I open to this? How do I open to this feeling of insecurity or anxiety or loneliness or longing or fear or existential angst or whatever it is? And the more that we open to that, the more we move into that, the more we feel it, it does tenderize the heart. It opens the heart, softens the heart, and there's more access, in my experience, to empathy, to kindness, 
and to compassion, to feeling that we're all just in this together. We're all struggling together. I mean, you know, you look around the room, it looks like everyone's hunky-dory and people look quite composed and, you know, they've, you know, their hair's nice and their shoes are polished and they have a nice shiny car out there and surely they've got it together. <laughs> and their lives are all smooth and they've got meditation practice and a nice partner and it looks just great. You know, we know, we scratch beneath the surface of anything, anyone, anywhere, and this life is challenging. You know, I got a call today from my sister and my father has a lump in his lung. It's like, wow. You know, you never know. You get you, One day you get a phone call and everything changes like that. And then how, how we bring that quality into relationship. Another place of tremendous vulnerability and tenderness and beauty and, and, and passion, but also, uh, you know, it's like many things, a, a vehicle for both beauty and connection and love, but also a vehicle for pain and sadness and loss and hurt and sorrow. And then the domain of sexuality. Again, another very beautiful, rich, passionate and also very delicate. How many people have, uh, is anybody here who hasn't made mistakes around sexuality? Anybody who hasn't caused harm around sexuality? Anybody who hasn't been harmed through sexuality? Probably not. Right? And how many people, is there anybody who hasn't been touched in some way by sexuality in a very beautiful way, in a very evocative way, or a very transpersonal way, where we really dissolve the sense of separation momentarily? This is from the, da- the sixth Dalai Lama. If one's thoughts towards the Dharma were of the same intensity as those towards erotic love, one would become a Buddha in this very body, in this very life. <laughs> I think it was the Buddha who said, um, if there were, I'm not sure if it was the Buddha, but um, that um, if there was another passion as strong as sexuality, there'd be no, there would be no spiritual life in, in this sense, in the meditation sense. That would be busy, busy with sexuality and something else. He says, forget it. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, again, this is from Ikkyum. So the, the sixth Dalai Lama was famous for, uh, infamous for um, sneaking out of the, the Patala Palace, where the, the 14th Dalai, the current Dalai Lama used to live, and going down to the local taverns and, you know, having a whale of a time. Um, as you did back then in the 6th century, or the sixth, whenever you lived. Uh, this is from Ikkyu, uh, again the Zen poet. The narrow path of asceticism is not for me. My mind runs in the opposite direction. It is easy to be glib about Zen. I'll just keep my mouth shut and rely on love play all day long. So, and I'm pointing to these things, you know, I, I gave this talk the other day to the staff, it was a staff retreat here, it was a very beautiful retreat, maybe 40-some of the staff who work here. And um, somebody said, oh, thank you for using the S word, like the sex word, like sexuality, like you actually mentioned the word, like, like as if it doesn't happen, <laughs> as, if, as if our meditations aren't, you know, filled with sexual fantasy or longing or 
as if we don't have sexual lives. And um, I said, yeah, of course, it's an it's important part of, of how we live. Whether we're sexually active or not, it's an energy that's powerful. And like everything, we need to incorporate how incorporate that into our, into our practice. How do we bring presence and kindness and awareness and compassion with our sexuality, with ourselves, with our partner? And I, you know, for me, it's 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 a be- it's like it's like anything. It's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful journey. And um, like I like my experience in anything in relationship. Uh, um, you know, this idea of beginner's mind in 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 meditation, where we where we let go of this idea that we know and we just meet the moment as it is. I think that's particularly relevant in relationship where we're dealing with some another person, let alone our own experience, that we never have any idea really who this person is or who this person is in this moment. We think, oh, there's Joe. I saw them last week. I know Joe. We've been buddies for five years. But we have no idea really. I mean, try understanding who we are. <laughs> right? It takes a lifetime of mystery and puzzlement and then, in trying to understand someone else we see once a week, like, no, can we maintain the mystery? So, part of my practice has been, over these years, um, uh, this idea of how do we stay in alignment with ourselves? How do we stay in alignment with what's really of value, what really has meaning for us, what really has purpose? And seeing where we step off the train, as it were, to see when we step out of alignment, whether it's with our with our ethical values or our values around service and generosity, because again, if we're not in integrity, then we suffer. And these teachings, the essence of these teachings, are about how we how we alleviate ourselves from our self-created suffering. So I'm going I'm to give you some reflections or questions just to think about. The first is, what limits you from embracing every part of yourself? What limits you? If, if you are limited, maybe you're not. Whether it's, whether it's your work, your, your body, your desires, your sensuality, your strong emotions, your difficult emotions... Is there a way that you have limit? Is there something that you have a limitation around embracing or expressing? Let's go for a way. So another question is: I mean, I'll just maybe just sit there for a moment. What and what limits you from embracing yourself? What is in the way? Some idea, some view, some aversion, some shame, some embarrassment. It's too hard. So another question is, what identity or view or self are you caught in about how you should be or act in the world? So we all have ideas, conscious or beliefs, conscious or unconscious about how we should be. From our conditioning, from our religious conditioning, from 
social, political, cultural conditioning of how we should be and therefore what we shouldn't be, what should be left out. So for me, in, in many Buddhist circles, wildness hasn't felt so welcome. Passion hasn't felt so welcome. Because one, one, one of the translations of um, the defilements, which are the, the things that cause the suffering, is passion. Right? So passion doesn't get a very good rap in most Buddhist circles. Right? But we have passion. We have passion for maybe our children, or for saving the planet, or for baking cookies, or for you know exercise and, and triathlons, or for you know fashion, or whatever it is, we have passions that bring us alive. Right? It's a juice; it's life force. We want to use that energy in a skillful way. So, what? Another question: What ideas do you have about Buddhist teachings? that create a certain sense of contraction or constriction in you. So for instance, uh, I often feel or hear people thinking they should be, they should have equanimity, they should be equanimous. You know, someone you know, insults them or they see some injustice in the world and they should be um, just, <laughs> just a lot of equanimity, doesn't bother me. I really hate you, but it doesn't bother me. I just want to slap you. <laughs> you know, and so again, it's uh, and, and so we're denying what's true. We want to allow what's true. We don't want to act it out if it's going to cause harm, but we want to feel it and allow it and know it, be it. Or an idea you have about w- what it looks like to be mindful. Well, I should walk very poised through the mall and through my office and look very dignified and shouldn't rush for the bus and, you know, shouldn't be checking texts, you know. You know, we all have trips. We just do. We just, that's what we, we bring ideas and views and assumptions and some of them are right and some of them are not so healthy or spot on. As I had many, I had many that were really erroneous. So, um, last couple of questions. What brings you alive? What brings you alive? What are you passionate about? What pulls, what calls your heart? And what shuts that down? Let me kind of maybe brace that in the earlier question. What shuts that, that passion down? So I'm going to close with a poem that I wrote a while ago, called Coming Out. Hibiscus unwind from cloisters and corking in a flagrant display. Anthers unabashed protrude sex to the sky while petals of silk fan out to catch the sun's glance and passing bees. Could I emerge from shadows with that abandon? Not cower from shackles of the past from old voices telling me to hide my light, conceal my wonders, be seen and not heard, which is to be invisible and a quiet death. Is there anything in this feathered, furry, leafy, winged world that hasn't pride in its magnificence or hides its gifts to the heavens? 
And so I ask, what light have you kept under some bushel, making this world and yourself a poorer place? So I invite you all, you shining Buddhas, (laughs) past, present, future, to um, mm, let your light shine. Let your, you know, your, as Martha Graham said, your unique expression, you know, and to look at what shuts that light down. You know, what's keeping you from living in alignment with yourself, with what's on fire for you, what's enlivened for you. Um... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.